This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 45. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Now, many sports fans growing up can connect with one of their professional teams, not solely by just the athletes, but many times it's the play-by-play announcers. And this just might be true if you're an Atlanta Hawks fan, as our guest in this episode is Bob Rathbun, who just recently entered into his 22nd season as a TV play-by-play announcer for the Atlanta Hawks on Fox Sports Southeast, alongside NBA Hall of Famer and former Atlanta Hawks, Dominique Wilkins. Now, not only will you find him broadcasting games for the Hawks, but you can also find him doing TV play-by-play for the Atlanta Dream of the WNBA. And if that's not enough, he continues to call college basketball games in the ACC, which he has done since 1988, and was also the TV play-by-play announcer for the Atlanta Braves on Fox Sports for 10 years. Now, knowing just all of what Bob has accomplished and how busy each year must be for him, one of the first things that I wanted to know and try to understand from Bob was just how does he find time to have some downtime and re-energize his batteries? Well, fortunately for me, I've been blessed that I don't need a lot of time. Um, A day here, a couple of days there, um, a little trip, little vacation. I'm not one. I don't need to get away for two weeks, you know, to come back strong. Just a couple of days and I'm ready to go. I'm so used to working year round. I have since I was you know, pretty much 19 years old when I was in school, uh, working full-time and going to school full-time, that I'm so used to it that it just, uh, it doesn't really take me a lot to uh, to get back. Now, if I have one of those runs in the wintertime where I'm doing college basketball in the NBA and, and I've got like eight games in nine days, something like that, then, you know, a day to just, you know, sit still, not travel, Uh, not look at tape and all that stuff is very beneficial. But I don't need a lot of time. So speaking of how long you've been in your career, so let's go back to your earliest memories of getting involved with sports and how you became a sports lover and the earliest memories you have of sports. Well, I I was a kid growing up uh, in North Carolina. Uh, In fact, I was born in Rhode Island, but my dad was transferred in the company he worked for. So we ended up in North Carolina, uh, a little town called Salisbury, right between Charlotte and Greensboro, and always loved sports and loved, was fascinated with radio. And 
when I was 12, for some reason, I picked up the telephone and called uh, the radio station in town. And the announcer on duty answered. It was a Sunday afternoon. And he said, well, young man, if you're that interested, um, why don't you come down and we'll give you a tour of the radio station. And my mom and dad took me down. And that began an every Sunday ritual where I would go hang out at the radio station and loved it. Just fell in love with it the day I walked into the place. And I did what 12-year-old kids would do, take out the garbage and get the guy a drink of water and just hang out, basically. But it was fascinating to me uh, to sit in the newsroom, little one-office newsroom, and listen to the network feed of Mutual Radio and all the stuff that was going on, uh, the teletype, all that stuff just absolutely captured me for a lifetime. Then one Sunday, the sportscaster at the station showed up, and he said, well, if you love sports and you love uh radio, come help us broadcast these American Legion baseball games. And the reason that Legion ball was broadcast was the team was so popular. They were so good and, and are to this day. Now we're talking about when I started, you know, uh, late sixties. Uh, and to this day, they still have one of the nationally renowned American Legion baseball programs. So in this little town, everybody went to all the games and, and the demand was so great that they put them on a radio and they're still broadcast to this day. And I, you know, again, I'm 12 years old, so I would just kind of hang out and get the guy a hot dog and stuff like that. And then one day he says, well, you're ready to make your debut. And I said, well, I guess I am. <laughs> and I got the uh, I got the microphone at the bottom of the seventh inning, this little kid. And uh, our first baseman, Joey Brown, I'll never forget his name as long as I live, hit a home run. Big left-handed hitting first baseman over the scoreboard, over the Coke sign, gone. Home run at Newman Park in Salisbury, North Carolina. And I don't remember what I said, but the announcer got the mic back at the top of the eighth inning. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have been waiting all season to call a home run. And when we hit one, I've got some 12-year-old kid on the mic. <laughs> and that announcer's name, that announcer's name was Marty Brenneman. He was just starting his career, the Hall of Fame baseball announcer for the Cincinnati Reds. And that's how I got started, and I've been at it ever since. Now, I didn't go back on the air, you know, for a long time until I was basically 19 years old um, when the sports guy left, and they asked me if I wanted to do it, and, and I went to college full-time and worked full-time beginning my sophomore year in college. So I didn't um, have any on-air work from 12 to 19, but what I did do is I worked at the station, and I also wrote for the newspaper in town, which gave me a fantastic uh, journalism background. Then it was great, and I've been at it ever since and loved every second of it. So how influential was Marty Brenneman in your career? Uh, he was. I mean, he got me started. He got me my first break. I would go visit Marty. He got the Reds job in 74, which was my uh, sophomore year, junior year. And uh, when he got the Reds job, I would go visit him every summer. Uh, and I would pick out a different National League ballpark to go to. Uh, so one year, uh, the summer of 78, uh, I was had graduated Catawba and uh, was working at the radio station. And I went to visit him. And he, he, we were at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. And uh, 
a newspaper columnist from the Norfolk paper, Norfolk, Virginia, came up to interview him, and the three of us are sitting down having dinner. And the writer said to Marty, hey, uh, Dick Frame is, is leaving his position as the voice of Old Dominion and William and & Mary to become the general manager of WTAR Radio. Would you like, uh, and Marty turned to me, he said, would you be interested in that job? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, and Marty and Dick had known each other for a long time, and I came up for an interview, got the job. And so he was very influential in helping me get started. And uh, it just great memories. I had a long run in Virginia. Uh, some of my fondest memories of broadcasting came there, got into TV, and was there for 14 years before starting off a, a major league career in Detroit. So it was great. Um, had a blast. Worked at a terrific radio TV station, uh, Old Line, WTAR, uh, AM, and, and TV. And just had a blast, absolute blast. So Marty was very influential. Definitely sounds like it. So now early on in your career, did you feel that you wanted to be a radio guy and it just happened to be that it evolved into TV? No, I I don't know. I I think back in those times, you know, we were in the same building. And so we would just walk, you know, the radio station was on the second floor. TV was on the first floor. And there was a time where I did both. I would go to work at 3.30 in the morning and, uh, prepare to be on, you know, those early morning news shows. Uh, now they come on at like 4.30 in the morning. But back then we came out at 6. And I would do TV, a couple of, of hits on the TV side for sports. And then I would go do radio. We staggered the time. So I would just walk up and down the steps and go from one to the other. So it was great. Uh, just had a blast. And that was also at a time when the regional sports networks started to take off. Cable TV was coming into its own. And more and more sports was appearing on television. And so I not only did I work for Channel 3, but I also started branching out working for uh, home team sports, which was the Orioles and uh, at that time Bullets uh, Regional Sports Network. Now it's Masson uh, and, and Comcast Mid-Atlantic. Uh, but they were just getting started and they needed programming. And so they did a lot of college games in Virginia, Old Dominion. Uh, William and Mary, James Madison, people like that, George Mason. Uh, and so they kept me busy. And it was just sort of an evolution. It wasn't really a choice. I, I loved doing both. But as TV got bigger, the more and more opportunities were in television. And what about baseball versus basketball? Did you have an interest more in either one of those sports? No, I did both. You know, uh, growing up in North Carolina, both sports are huge. Uh, as you know, Tobacco Road basketball is still to this day, you know, the Duke of North Carolina and the ACC is still huge. And baseball uh, was very big uh, for me. Uh, obviously, my Legion experience. And then I did minor league baseball for, oh, let's see, uh, 12 years, I guess, nine years, nine, 11, 12. Yeah, 11 years, I guess I did minor league baseball. Then I did the big leagues. I did Detroit. I did the, the Orioles. I filled in uh, for Mel Proctor did the Tigers and then did the Braves down here for 10 years. So I always did both and always loved doing both. Uh, the problem I ran into was that down here, the overlap uh, just became too great. Uh, the Hawks were good. They were in the playoffs and that would take me through the end of April. And uh, I couldn't obviously do spring training in the first month of the Braves season. So they, you know, we sort of went our separate ways but I did both forever. It really wasn't much of a choice. Even when I was doing the Tigers, I would come back and do ACC basketball in the wintertime for Raycon. So I always did both. 
And so speaking of Detroit, you replace a legend, Ernie Harwell. Was there added pressure because of that? Oh, my God. It was awful. <laughs> it was terrible. Uh, I always tell people, yeah, I didn't replace Ernie. My partner did. I replaced Paul Carey, who retired. <laughs> That's a little, little, little Tiger history joke. But, uh, no, it was, uh, it was a nightmare. And it was a nightmare from day one. And uh, sadly, uh, the, you know, Ernie uh, did not want to leave. The fans did not want him to leave. And they were going to – they had made up their minds to be against whoever came in. Uh, if Rick Riz, who was my partner, still does the Mariners games, I think if we had found a cure for cancer – we would not have been welcomed into the Tiger community. Uh, we lasted three years. Every day was a nightmare. Uh, I think the mistake that I made, and, and not speaking for Rick, but the mistake I made was the, the negativity was so fierce that we did the worst thing we could do, and that's try to please everybody. And uh, it did not work. Uh, Ernie came back after one year, then he went away again. Uh, so it was a tumultuous time, and uh you know, the old saying, if I knew then what I know now, uh, I would have never taken the job. So was that the biggest lesson that you've learned from that experience? Or what other lessons did you take away from those three years? Well, I think, um, I don't know. It, 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 there weren't too many, not too much good came out of that. Our son was born in Detroit, so that was a good thing. Uh, but they, they just weren't... Um, so the, the problem, Rich, that we had was the people who hired us uh, that went – I mean, I, I survived 220 applicants uh, for the job. Um, so it was quite a rigorous screening process to find two guys that would be compatible. And Rick and I knew each other from the minor leagues. So it wasn't like they just threw two guys in. There was a lot of thought and consideration. But the problem we had was – Basically, two months, if you count spring training, March and April, after two months and into May, the team was sold. That's when Mike Illich took over and Tom Monahan sold the Tigers. And all the people on the Tigers side that were involved in our hiring got fired. You know, guys like Jeff Odenwald, guys like Doc Finkel, they all were instrumental in getting us there. And then they were gone. We were two months into our first year. And so when you got that kind of support taken away from you initially, you know, Bo Schembechler was uh, instrumental in our hiring. He was gone. So all those people were kind of left out there hanging. And uh, then Mr. Illich took over. We didn't really talk to him uh, until months down the road. And, you know, when we did, he did come to us, he said, look, he said, I think that uh, that Ernie's uh, firing, if you want to call it that, um, you know, was was not right. And we need to fix it. And I want to bring him back. And we said, well, Mr. Hillage, it's your ball club. You can do whatever you want. I said, well, we got contracts. What do you what do you want us to do? And so we created a three year uh, three man booth uh, for that second year. And then by the end of the third year, the third year was 94. And that was the. um year the season ended in, in August with the work stoppage uh, World Series canceled and all that and then by at, a week before Christmas they let us both go. Was it almost a relief that you got let go? I didn't think so at the time uh, I now it was obviously a blessing but um, at the time I you know you work so hard to get there 
you know, I worked in almost a decade in the minors to get there. You would think, you know, would be one of your great accomplishments. Yeah, and that's with a storied program too. Oh yeah, I mean, this is Detroit at Tiger Stadium. I mean, we did everything we could do uh, to make you know the broadcasts. Uh, you know, they sounded different. I mean, the, the difference in ages for us and Ernie and Paul were dramatic. I mean, we skipped over a whole generation and. You know, the people in Detroit, they just didn't want to know part of it. And they just made it so miserable for us. And even the people who supported us, uh, they would mute their voice. You know, they wouldn't print letters to the editor in our support. Uh, they wouldn't take phone calls on talk shows, people who enjoyed us. You know, so it, it was poisoned from day one. But looking back, you know, I'm, um, I don't know. I can't say that I'm glad I did it, but I, I, I enjoyed so much more coming uh, back to the South and being in Atlanta uh, came right after the Olympics in 96. And, you know, it was, it was a much better time. You know, I, I, uh, I was validated, I think as a broadcaster down here, much more than I ever was up there. Uh, 10 Emmys and sportscasters of the year and all that stuff. Since I've been in Atlanta, at least with my peers, uh, they think I do a, a decent job. So it, from that point, it was a lot more satisfying to come to work where you, you thought you were appreciated. So coming to Atlanta, did you feel that was you were almost re-energized again? Um, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, you just you're trying to survive. I mean, you're trying to get your resurrect your career um, in baseball. And then, it, it, you know, I was fairly new to the NBA. I had done some of it. Uh, with the bullets, uh, but not full time. And uh, even though I had a lengthy uh, basketball resume, it was more on the college scene uh, with ESPN and CBS and places like that. So I had to, you know, kind of earn my spurs in the NBA. But it's been great. I've loved every second of it. And um, this will be year number twenty-two coming up. That's yeah, a fantastic career so far. And so, what about the differences between? calling a baseball game and a basketball game. Obviously, we know the pace is different, but from your mindset, how is it different for you? It's storytelling, Rich, for sure, uh, but it's uh, as different as night and day. You know, baseball, you just have to and, – and there's a big difference, too, between radio and TV. You know, I'll, I'll speak to radio. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask that as well, too, Bob, uh, the difference between radio oh, and sure. TV. Yes. Yeah, radio, you just get that blank canvas every night, and it's up to you. And I marvel at the greats uh, who could do that. You know, John Miller, I love to listen to out in San Francisco. Uh, I just think he's wonderful. Television, uh, it's interesting. I haven't done the Braves now in, in 10 years. But I still am a baseball fan, and I watch the games. But I'm not crazy about the way baseball is televised these days, because there is very little storytelling. You know, the master... Uh, just hung it up, Vin Scully. And Vinny, as he went around last year and, and uh, everybody knew it was going to be his last year, kept commenting about, you know, we're going to miss the storytelling. We're going to miss his ability to just enrapture us for three hours a night uh, with all these great stories. Where has that gone? And my point to them is, yeah, Vinny's the best there has ever been. But we don't want storytelling. At least the executives don't, because they don't let you do it. If you look at a game these days, 
there's a pitch box, there's a crawl going on at the bottom, there's graphics all over the place, and the hitter and the pitcher are in this little um, box, <laughs> you know? It's like, what am I supposed to watch? And I, I just think we've gotten away from the storytelling. You know, storytelling is not the analyst saying, oh, that uh, cutter wasn't on the, you know, where he wanted it. It came up over the plate instead of being in on his, but that's not storytelling. That's talking to pitching coaches. Uh, Vinny was talking to the fans and sharing stories about people and places and times and history and all that stuff. And uh, that we have gotten away from. The storytelling in basketball, it's a game of the moment. Uh, there's very little significance to statistical uh, uh, entities like baseball. You know, baseball is all about the numbers, home runs, batting average, the greats of the game and, and the numbers they put up, et cetera. Uh, not so much in basketball. Yet yeah, there's some. I mean, you know that uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, uh, led the, you know, the all-time leading scorer and Russell Westbrook with what he did with his triple-doubles last year and Oscar Robertson and those kinds of things. But generally speaking, uh, the numbers in basketball don't mean a whole lot. So how do you tell the stories of the game and the people in fractions of a second almost because the game is so fast? And that's the challenge, I think, of storytelling uh, in the NBA, particularly on TV when you've got so many sponsored elements to get in whenever there's a break in the action. From a storytelling perspective, is that a learned skill or is that just something that some people just have a God-given talent to be able to do something like that? Oh, I think it's a little of both, but I do think it's something you can work on. Um, The big thing about telling stories is knowing when to tell them. You know, any broadcaster worth his salt has a, a... preparation that he could talk for eight hours uh, on a given night, but probably uses maybe 5% of it because the game dictates what you say. And so having a wonderful story that doesn't apply uh, is like not having a story at all. (laughs) So, you know, you've got to pick your spots. You've got to know how to tell a story and all that can be practiced and nuanced and worked on. Um, I tell my young broadcast students that I teach, uh, you know, you've got to go back and listen to your work. It's the only way. It's, it's like coaches grading game film. You just have to go back and listen to it. And you say, you know what? That stunk. That was, that was pretty good. That was not so hot. I could do a better job. And then the next time when that situation uh, comes up, you'll, you'll have a, a history and a knowledge of, you know what, the last time – I said this, but I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to say it this way. And I think that's the great challenge for all of us. And that really is a, that's something that's ongoing. I don't think anybody ever masters it. You work on it, but you know, you, you're still looking for that perfect broadcast. that will never come. How do you prepare for particular games, particular seasons? What's your preparation routine? Well, you know, I, I say there's um, a couple of, of uh, preparations that, I think any of us go through. I think the one is uh, the 365 day a year prep that if you read a book and see a story and you just clip it out and file it and uh, you kind of put it away for when you see that team again. 
But then there's the game-specific, and I think the best way to describe the game-specific preparation is it's like studying for a final exam. And all of us who have been there in high school or college know what that's like. Uh, When you've got to take a semester's worth of work and get ready for one test uh, one day, to me, that's that's the best way to describe how you prepare for a game. And I do it several different ways. I I watch a lot of film. Uh, The Hawks uh, treat me so well. Rich, that they let me get on uh, Synergy so I can watch any game in the world, any NBA game, the cut-ups, get all the advanced statistics. I've got newspaper clippings and video clips and audio bites and all that stuff at my fingertips. So that's how I go through it. But I want to tell the story of that game, and I want to, with all the information that's out there, uh, come up with some things that people just don't know about. And I think the best way that I've found that uh, for me to do that is to talk to people. Uh, There's no substitute for getting to the arena or the ballpark or the stadium early and talking to people, talking to coaches, talking to players, uh, talking to administrators. They will tell you stuff that you can't find anywhere else. I think a lot of young people are so reliant on the internet these days, just Google it, yeah, that'll get you started, but it won't give you the depth or the framework uh, to put all this great information in. Uh, so that's, in a nutshell, what I go through. But I think a, watching a lot of film and getting familiar with the players uh, of the other team, uh, particularly when I do a college game, if I haven't seen them, I'll go back and I'll watch two or three games of, say, Clemson and Georgia Tech, if I've got that game on the ACC network, uh, to get ready. Because I want to be – because the fans who are watching know their teams infinitely better than I do. So I've got to kind of catch up and get uh, into their teams like they are. So that's the challenge. The NBA comes easy to me because I'm there every night, and uh, it's almost done for me because I'm covering just one team. Now, what about covering – NBA, the men's game versus the WNBA with the women's. Is there any difference in how you're how you call a game because of the game itself? No, no change whatsoever. I just do bad. It could be a seventh grade JV game. I, I will do it the same way. I don't, I don't change anything. Um, preps the same. Uh, there's more challenges in the WNBA because they don't have the information like the like the NBA. But other than that, the calling of the game itself, no change at whatsoever. Uh, I get just as wound up for a dream game as I do for a Hawks game, and I wouldn't know how to do it any other way. So now, specific to Atlanta, I grew up in Atlanta and watched the Hawks, and I would have to say that somewhat of a Hawks fan to a certain degree, but I actually was a Chicago Bulls fan, and that was all because of Michael Jordan in all reality. And it was just frustrating at times to see that the Hawks would get to a certain level but could never really get over the hump. What's your thoughts on what's missing from the Hawks and why they can't be a true contender? Well, I think uh, probably the the one thing is that other than Dominique Wilkins, uh, we've never really had a transcendent-type player. You know, we've never had Michael. We've never had... Uh, LeBron. We've never had, you know, people like that uh, to come through this way. And I think that speaks for not only the Hawks, but I think probably 25 teams in the NBA that we just don't have, you know, that one guy. So how you get it done when you don't have that player? 
And I think that's the challenge for all of us. And I thought what we did two years ago uh, to get uh, 60 wins out of that group was miraculous. Uh, Bud did a great coaching job. The pieces fit together. And we we got it done without the uh, you know the LeBron James of the world, the Michael Jordans of the world, uh, to help get us over that hump. And I am convinced that had we stayed healthy, we would have gone to the NBA Finals. We would have beaten Cleveland, and we would have been in the NBA Finals. But we were just we were just too banged up. And and the reason I say that is because uh, the injuries were so crucial. If you remember, that was the year that Tabo Cephalosha had his leg broken by the cops in New York. And I remember Kenny Atkinson, who's now the head coach at Brooklyn, said, what does this do to us uh, in terms of beating Cleveland? Does it reduce our chances by 20%, 30%? So it was a, a big, big loss because he was the guy who was going to, you know, basically guard LeBron in that playoff series. So we had our chance, you know, it's sort of like Haley's Comet, uh, it, it came and it went, uh, but it was spectacular while I was here. Now, speaking of Dominique Wilkins, how does somebody like that, a Hall of Famer, sitting beside you, helping from a analyst perspective, how does that help your storytelling during a game? <laughs> I let him tell the stories. <laughs> He's got so many. I just wind, I just wind him up and let him go. Uh, no, it's one of the great treats. Um, to, to not only sit by him on the broadcast, but just travel with him and be around him. Uh, because, you know, he's still, it's amazing, 20-plus years after he played, uh, he is still an iconic figure. Uh, it's like a rock star. Every arena we go in, um, people just want to be around him. They want his autograph. They want to talk to him, get a piece of him. And he's very accommodating to, to all. And just the stories that he, he weaves, you know, he's got a story for every city. He remembers uh, moments in games like uh, it was yesterday. So that, that part, I think, is a lot of fun. And I hope that we can draw that out of him and, and have him tell those stories on the air. What about you in terms of, I know it's probably very difficult. You've called, gosh, what, over 3,000 games. What are some of the most memorable games that you've called? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I get asked that question all the time. Uh, and I guess probably unless we win a championship, uh, you know, there'll be a void uh, in that regard. Um, but, you know, going back, it wasn't one game. It was a series of games. I, when we went 19-0 in January two years ago uh, and set the NBA record for never losing a game in one calendar month and play that many games, um, you know, that will never be duplicated. It sure won't be broken. Um, that was pretty special. Uh, but the best part of that streak was how the city came alive, how Atlanta was united behind the Hawks. Uh, you know, you go and you, you pick up your dry cleaning, and the little lady behind the counter, oh, our our Hawks doing well? You know, that kind of reaction uh, was, I'd never seen anything like that before. And, um, you know, this city gets a bad rap about its sports fans, but there was nothing wrong then. And it was just so fantastic to see everybody just so swept up in what the Hawks were doing. It it was no different. Uh, I wasn't here, but no different from 1991 when the Braves went worst to first. Uh, Same thing. Uh, Everybody's staying up late to see if the Dodgers lost or the Giants lost. And 
it was great. And and the Hawks were the same way. And uh, we set ratings records, and it was just tremendous. So I would say that that particular time, uh, no doubt, was the highlight. What about can you pinpoint the greatest NBA player you ever saw? Well, you know, as a kid, I, I got a chance to see a lot of uh, uh, early NBA. My mom would take me to Providence to see the Celtics play when we lived in Rhode Island. I was just a little kid. So I got to see, you know, the, the Celtics at the end of that run, um, in the middle of that run, I guess, uh, in the 60s. So I saw Coos and I saw Russell and, you know, I was a little fella. Uh, but I got to see some of that. Lenny Wilkins with St. Louis and, you know, people of that ilk. But I, my major pro basketball memories came in the ABA uh, with the Carolina Cougars. And as I mentioned, I was on the air when I was 19 and, the Cougars were were so nice that they would allow us to come cover the games, you know, just some kid from a radio station. And so I would go every night I could go. And the Cougars were a regional franchise, and they played in uh, Charlotte and Greensboro, some games in Raleigh. They played a few in Asheville. I mean, they were all over the place. But I would see them in Charlotte mainly and, and Greensboro. And so I got to see all those ABA greats uh, before the merger. People like, you know, Dan Issel, Dr. J. Uh, you just go right on down the line. Uh, Joe Caldwell, when he jumped leagues from the Hawks to the Cougars. And all these guys that, you know, have proven to be fantastic, even though they were in the ABA for the bulk of their career. So I got the chance to see a lot of people. Uh, you know, the obvious knee-jerk answer to your question is Michael Jordan. Uh, but... I, you know, he he was great and, and arguably the greatest that's ever played. But I, he's just one of many to me that uh, were awe-inspiring. And I, I can't just say one guy uh, like they do on Sports Talk Radio now. You know, they, <laughs> that's right. You know, somebody's got to be first, somebody's <laughs> got to be second, and somebody's got to be third, and you have an argument for four hours. I, mm. that, to me, that's that's a just a meaningless exercise. Uh just enjoy the players for the era in which they played, and and uh, I'm lucky that I've been around the game a long time, and I've seen a lot of great players. Now I, I agree. There's it, it's hard as generations they all have their great players in there, and it's hard to compare. Obviously, uh, the game does change, and the players change from that perspective. But you you really haven't. You've been able to evolve in terms of your career and just the things that you've wanted to accomplish. And one of the other things that I, I see that you're always willing to give back and mentor. So why is that so important to you, Bob? Oh, probably because that's what happened to me. You know, these guys that, uh, you know, the announcer that let me visit when I was 12, uh, John Bolser was his name. Uh, Marty, we talked about uh, guys at the newspaper, uh, guys at the radio station. These were all mentors and teachers for me. And I had, when I was at Catawba, I was a speech major and the head of the department basically was my professor, Dr. Carl Hales. Uh, I don't know where I'd be without him. Uh, he was so instrumental in helping me uh, develop a speaking voice and, a, and, a, and become a broadcaster that... Um, all those people were mentors to me, and they didn't have to be. You know, it could have been just uh, the perfunctory stuff, but they didn't. They took their time. Uh, I guess they saw something in me, but still, uh, they they went out of their way to to make it happen. And 
and I guess I just feel like that's my responsibility. If, if people consider me having, you know, accomplished a few things in my career and I can help a young broadcaster, uh, then I want to do that. And so it just seems natural to me that just pay it forward kind of thing. Yeah. And so in speaking of that, also the uh, fast forward winner book that you have and the 95 five rule share what all that is and why you were motivated to write a book. Well, uh, thank you for mentioning that. I, um, a, a couple of things happened. You know, I've gotten into a lot of speaking uh, over the last 20 years or so. And I think most of us who are sportscasters are asked to uh, go MC a banquet, uh, particularly a sports banquet, awards banquet, you know, what have you. And I did that for, you know, many, many years. Uh, and, you know, people said, hey, you're pretty good at that. And so when I was here in Atlanta, uh, I, I got to know a gentleman named John Maxwell uh, and the people, a guy, guy, guy named Ken Coleman, who um, – worked for him. And, and John is a prolific author, uh, one of the leadership gurus of all time, and lives here uh, in, in metropolitan Atlanta and had a speakers bureau. And I would, I got hooked up because he spoke to a group of Hawks season ticket holders. And I had said to him, I said, you know, speaking is something that I would like to do. And he said, well, come on and, and help us and uh, develop, you know, your points and programs, et cetera. And uh, you can be on our speakers bureau. And so when companies would call to have John come speak uh, and they took a look at the price tag, they said, well, do you have anybody else that might be a little cheaper? (laughs) And so they would they had this they had this group of speakers and and we would go out and we would basically teach John stuff uh, and speak for him. Uh, But that gave me the bug uh, to get out there and do it. And then I was around. Um, so many great coaches who were speakers, uh, you know, Coach K and uh, Dick Vitale was a former partner of mine at ESPN. And all these guys were, were just wonderful uh, speakers. And, and it was something that, that I really enjoyed doing. So that's how it got started. And then the, the Fast Forward Winner is a book that I wrote. It's more of a manual than anything uh, as a six-step life process for young people, young adults, uh, if you don't know quite what you'd like to do with your life, this might help you. Uh, it'll organize your thoughts. Uh, it'll help you take a look. If you're serious about it, sit down, take a look at, at your life, what you like, what you don't like, what you think you're good at, and try to put a plan together to make that happen. Now, it may be a hobby. It may be your life's work, but it'll give you some guidance and direction as the steps to take uh, to get go to from A to B and B to C. Um, so that's what the Fast Forward Winner is all about. And I, I teach to a lot of, of uh, school districts. Um, we have rallies. We have uh, uh, basketball stuff that we do. We have uh, lecture series. So there's a lot of stuff. But I, I'd like to give young people hope uh, that they can do it. I don't think, uh, with all due respect to the teachers and administrators, I don't think this is something that there's a lot of, uh, particularly in public school, that you can do it. And, and I try to serve as an example to young people. Look, look kids, <laughs> I have news for you. If I could do it, <laughs> you could do it. Uh, and just about anybody can do it if you'll just take the time, uh, you know, to study it and, and uh, not get frustrated and, and keep your nose to the grindstone. Anybody with an iPhone can be a broadcaster these days. Um, 
It's easy. You can get on Periscope, you get on Facebook Live, and you can start quote-unquote broadcasting. But you and I both know that that's not broadcasting. That is just somebody with an iPhone. You know, but if you want to take the time and work on it and get good, uh, have something good to say, um, and say it well, then there's a place for you. And uh, no better time than today with all of the incredible media opportunities that are out there uh, to do that type of work. So that's what I try to encourage with the fast forward winner and, and all my speaking. No, I like that. And we've all heard the 80-20 rule, but you have the 95-5 rule. So what is that? Can you explain that? Sure. That is a talk that I give rich to corporations. And the, the overall message of it is, you know, there are five things that I picked up that are easily transferable from the boardroom, uh, from the uh, playing court to the boardroom uh, that will make your company better. Uh, it's a talk I give mainly to small business, but I, it applies to a, a mega corporation, too. And these are five things uh, that I picked up really from the great coaches and managers that I've been exposed to uh, over the years. These five different traits that they have uh, without fail incorporated into their program uh, to make a great team. And I take those five and go through them, uh, and that's the substance of the talk. And it, it it, it applies universally. It's it's not something that, you know, this particular widget maker might not use. Now, these are five things that any leadership group uh, can cling on to. And I give some real-world examples about how that's done. And the first one I start with is having a positive vision of the future. I said, you know, in business, uh, you're at a disadvantage uh, to sports uh, in this regard. In, in the sports world, we have an off-season. We have a time where we shut it down, we reevaluate, we make changes in personnel, in the management team, in the playing staff, uh, you name it. Uh, we get a new schedule, and we train for a month, and then we embark on our new season. I said, business, you can't shut the factory down for four months and have an off-season and retool. I mean, you've got to keep moving. And the example I give is a a Greyhound bus going down the interstate 70 miles an hour, and there's a flat on the back right tire, and the management team is hanging out the window trying to change that thing as the bus is going down the expressway. That's business. And to share with what the great coaches do and the great managers um, do to help you change that flat while you're going down the interstate. So th th those are the things that I talk about 95.5. That's great. So and a lot of that you know, comes from sports, as you mentioned, and I agree with you 100% that a lot of those traits are transferable. So just wrapping things up, Bob, talking about sports in general, just can you sum up what sports has meant in your life? Oh, gosh, it's meant everything. Um, you know, it's, they always say it's not a job if you love what you do, and, and I can – Certainly uh, attest to that. Um, it is just so much fun to be in this arena. Uh, the outcome is unknown, but it's the ultimate reality TV show. Um, there's an old line, Rich, by Don Shula, the great coach, that kind of sums up how I feel about this business. And he said, the closer I get to the stadium – 
the faster I walk. <laughs> and that pretty much sums it up for me. You know, there can be times when you're losing and your team stinks and uh, the broadcasts aren't going well, but you do your preparation, your due diligence, and you get ready, uh, and you know it's your show, and you get in the car and you start driving to the arena. And once you get inside and the team start coming out and the pep band starts playing or the music starts, uh, the adrenaline starts to pump, the lights come on, they turn on the scoreboard, and all of a sudden you're transfixed once again. And, and that pretty much sums it up for me. I, I just, I can't imagine a time that I have been, other than the three years in Detroit, <laughs> I can't imagine a time where I didn't go to the ballpark and just absolutely be enthralled with being there. What's going to happen tonight? And, and I think if you have that, you've got everything. and you've got your health, uh, you can't have it any better than that. Yes, sir. So what about finishing up with some words of wisdom for our listeners, Bob? Well, I think no matter um, no matter what your age, no matter where you see your station in life, uh, if you've got a heartbeat, uh, you can make positive changes. And not that anything's going wrong in your life, but most of us, I think, are achievers. There's something else we want to do, uh, whether we want to improve as a parent, uh, be better at our job, uh, have more interesting hobbies, be well-read, uh, those kinds of things. That, that personal achievement, I think, sort of gnaws at us all. And I think for anybody at any time, you can, you can do something about it. It could be just for fun or it could be a serious look at your life and say, I've got to make these changes. And so I think that those words of wisdom would be, go for it. Uh, Get the training, read the books, go to the seminars, be all you can be. Uh, There is no repeat of this life. You get one shot at it, be happy, uh, pursue those dreams with vigor and gusto. And I think you'll just at the end of the day, have a happier, more well-balanced, meaningful life. Uh, and it's not easy because the outside world uh, has its influences, uh, whether it's jobs or family or circumstance. You know, those things don't change, but you can change the set of the sail uh, and adjust to the winds however they blow. So those would be, uh, if those are indeed a words of wisdom, uh, I'd like to share with your listeners. And uh, I'm honored to be on with you and wish you nothing but the best. Let me know how I can help. Now, there's no question that Bob practices what he preaches in terms of finding a passion and just going after it. Just look at his career for an example and how at the age of 12 years old, he picked up the phone and called the local radio station. Now, I doubt many of us at 12 would have done that. And it also shows that not everyone's path is always this easy and perfect path as Bob could have easily let those troubled years in Detroit derail his future in broadcasting. But he realized that those years were just, you know, part of his journey. And that's the same for all of us. It won't always be easy. And there could be difficult times. But the ones that find true success and keep going, they learn and grow from those experiences and truly understand that it's all a part of their journey. Now that finishes episode 45. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. 
You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.